Dr. Claudia Baldassano of the University of Pennsylvania has said that today's guest is a master at making tedious concepts come to life. For many of us, nothing in medicine is as tedious as drug metabolism. Welcome to the ReachMD Book Club. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, author of You Can Think Like a Psychiatrist, your host, and with me today is Dr. Daniel Carlott. Dr. Carlott is Assistant Clinical Professor of Psychiatry at Tufts University School of Medicine. He founded Clearview Publishing in 2002, and its flagship publication, The Carlott Psychiatry Report, has become one of the most well-respected newsletters in the field. It is quoted widely in the national media, including the New York Times and the Boston Globe. Welcome to ReachMD. Well, thanks for having me on the show. You've written one of the most useful medical books I've ever read. I like the title of the first edition better than the second edition, I have to tell you. And the title of the first edition was called When Molecules Collide. Right. And, uh, yeah, I mean, the question, I think the reason that I changed the title to the extremely boring Drug Metabolism in Psychiatry, a Clinical Guide, which was the second edition, was that I wanted to make it clear to people exactly what the book was about, because I was getting feedback. People were saying, what is this about? Is this uh, a book about astronomy? Is it a book for the general public, you know, making science come alive, or is it a book for psychiatrists? So that was the reason for changing the title. I completely understand, but I still like the first one better. Now, for most of us, uh, drug interactions, which is clearly the meat of the book, at least for me. Drug interactions aren't on the top of our uh, books we'd like to write or read list. Why did you choose to write about this topic? Well, you know, I think precisely because of that, we often hear about drug interactions. We often hear about terms such as half-life, onset, duration of action, pharmacokinetics, etc. And we don't necessarily really know what we're talking about. So I thought that I would go through the literature and uh, figure out if there was a way to make some of these concepts simple, but not too simple. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I lecture quite a bit on this topic, and it's surprising and pretty scary to me that, at least from my audiences, that most physicians, especially those of us that were trained maybe a little less recently, really don't get this topic at all. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, there are a number of misconceptions out there. For example, you know, oftentimes people assume that they can predict whether a drug is going to have, you know, uh, withdrawal symptoms based entirely on its half-life. And we often hear people say that short half-life drugs cause a terrible withdrawal reactions, and Paxil is certainly one of the ones we hear about. And yet the half-life of Paxil is 24 hours or so, uh, which is no shorter than those of Zoloft, Celexa, or Lexapro. So you know, you have to kind of look carefully at the data to make predictions about these things. Certainly as psychiatrists, we need to know this information. Is it relevant to other specialties as well? Well, it is relevant. I mean, we're talking about psychiatric medications here primarily, but one of the key things that I wrote about in the book was the interactions between non-psychiatric medications and psychiatric medications. So uh, in one of the charts, for example, I just list in alphabetical order the common medical, quote-unquote, or non-psychiatric cardiac meds, diabetes meds, GI meds. And then in the next column, I tell you whether there are significant interactions with particular psychiatric drugs. So if you are there as a clinician about to prescribe Lipitor, for example, you can look over and see that the only real interaction you need to worry about is that the level of Lipitor might be increased by 
concomitant administration of uh, fluoxetine or Prozac and so on. Real briefly, can you just give us the uh, Drug Interactions 101? Again, words we throw around a lot, but I'm not sure that people understand what's a substrate, what's an inducer, uh, what's an inhibitor. So, uh, yeah, the, the essence of it is that there are drugs that patients take into their body, and then there are second drugs, and those second drugs can have some effects. So, a uh, substrate is a drug that is metabolized by a particular enzyme in our body. Inhibition happens when two drugs compete for that same enzyme. So the one drug, in this case the inhibitor, binds more tightly to the enzyme than the other drug, right? And so then the other drug or the victim drug gets stuck in this game of musical chairs where it looks for an enzyme system to break it down, and then its levels tend to rise. Then there's also induction, which is sort of the opposite of inhibition. So that happens when an inducing drug stimulates the production of extra enzymes. It actually causes the uh, DNA to ramp up and to cause extra enzymes to be produced. And so if your patient is taking a med that is metabolized by those same enzymes, then that med will be broken down more rapidly than normal, leading to lower levels of the medication. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Daniel Carlott. We are discussing his book, Drug Metabolism and Psychiatry, A Clinical Guide. Thank you. That is one of the most coherent descriptions I've ever heard of this. Now, let's switch to um, steady state. What are the implications of knowing steady state information about drugs in clinical practice? Well, you want to know about steady state because this allows you to get a sense of how long a patient needs to be taking a medication until they reach a point where the blood level will be pretty consistent and will not vary too much from one day to another. So, for example, lithium reaches steady state in five days. And how do you know that? You have to know the half-life of lithium. The half-life of lithium is about 24 hours. So after approximately five days or five half-lives, the oscillation, the peak versus the trough of lithium in the bloodstream is very, very minimal. Dr. Carlott, when does the cost justify the use of things like the extended release formulations of medications? Because clearly they're more expensive. Right. Well, you know, uh, you have to look at the rationale for using an extended release medication. One of the rationales that the drug companies use in their marketing is that extended release medications need only be given once a day rather than twice a day or three times a day, for example. But is that really an advantage? In other words, the original medication, which may not be extended release, does that really need to be taken twice a day in order to have an effect? And for most of the meds in psychiatry, the answer is resounding no. You know, as a matter of fact, in some cases like lithium, there's data to support the idea that if you give it all in the evening, it may be less damaging for the kidneys. The the efficacy of meds like Depakote, and uh, most of the antidepressants, for example, Surzone, which is a shorter half-life drug and is recommended to take twice a day, studies comparing twice-a-day dosing to once-a-day dosing have shown that there's just no difference at all in relative efficacy. Now, there are cases, and in my book, I do discuss Wellbutrin, where there are at least theoretical advantages for extended release. And we all know, uh, or at least in psychiatry, we're very concerned about the possibility of seizures induced by too high a blood level of Wellbutrin. And certainly, there's less of a peak in concentration when you give Wellbutrin XL than when you give either Wellbutrin SR or 
the immediate release version. However, is there any actual data to show that there are fewer seizures with the extended release of Wellbutrin? Really, there aren't any such data. So it remains a theoretical advantage. And certainly, you know, non-scientifically, but in my own anecdotal experience, I find much less insomnia with the Wellbutrin XL compared to the previous preparations. Yeah, I can see how that could certainly be because, again, you know, you're smoothing out the levels, and particularly if you give it in the morning, you're going to have a much lower level of the medication uh, in the evening. Let's move on to another topic. Uh, How about P450 genotyping? Is this at all useful? And if so, when should we order this test? Yeah, the idea with P450 genotyping is that we all vary in the degree to which we express the enzymes that metabolize drugs. And most of us are normal metabolizers. That's called, kind of confusingly, that's called extensive metabolizers. But there are also people who are poor metabolizers genetically, who tend to have higher levels of some drugs that are metabolized. And then there are other people who are ultra-rapid metabolizers who have extra copies of genes that produce the enzymes, and therefore they tend to metabolize drugs at a higher rate, and you might need to give them higher doses of medication. You can order P450 genotyping. There are several companies now that allow you to do so. But again, you know, the question is, does this really benefit the patient? And one of the, really one of the national experts, uh, Roy Perlis, who's at Mass General, I spoke with him and had interviewed him for one of the issues of the Carlisle Report. He believed, uh, looking at all the data, that it really isn't ready for prime time Because if you want to find out what the blood level of a medication is in a patient, by far the best way to do it is to simply order a blood test. Order a blood level. (laughs) What a concept. Right, right. So, uh, and he pointed out that even if you get the genotype and you find that someone's a poor metabolizer, there are so many other factors aside from the genotype that might account for differences in blood levels, including compliance that you really are almost always going to need to get a blood test anyway to find the actual level. Yeah, I've had several patients come in demanding this test because they read about it in the latest magazine, and and I haven't quite found its place yet. Yeah, it's something that uh, patients kind of like because it gives the psychiatrist the aura of being, you know, a, quote, real doctor because (laughs) this is a test that we can order that will give them an answer. Thank you so much for being on our show today. Thanks for having me. We've been talking with Dr. Daniel Carlott about his latest book, Drug Metabolism in Psychiatry, A Clinical Guide, a rather non-sexy title to a crucial topic in medicine. I'm Dr. Leslie Lent. You've been listening to the ReachMD Book Club on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your questions and comments, so please visit us at ReachMD.com. Our new on-demand and podcast features will allow you to access our entire program library. Thank you for listening.